Well, we've said previously that in this book, Mark wants us to be confronted with the question, who is Jesus? Who is he? What is his identity? And based upon the objective, the answering of that objective question, who is Jesus in fact, we then are called to address the subjective question, who is Jesus to me? Who is Jesus to you? The prevailing notion is that Jesus was a great teacher. Some will grant that he was endowed by God to do wondrous things, but ultimately at the end of the day, Jesus comes to offer you suggestions for how to live a happier, fuller, healthier life. Or maybe that Jesus wants to affirm you in all your beautiful you-ness, you're wonderful. Jesus wants to tell you that you're a great mom, a great dad, a great husband, a great wife, a great man, a great woman, a great boss, a great... You're just great, and Jesus wants to pat you on the back. Jesus wants to make you not feel ashamed of all the bad decisions you've ever made, or not ashamed of all the bad decisions that other people have made to you. And the prevailing notion is that it stops there. That Jesus comes to affirm, to relieve guilt, to relieve, relieve an aching conscience, but that's what all he really does. And of course, people like it that way, because then Jesus remains something that benefits us, but doesn't make any demands upon us. As we've said, Mark's original audience was literally being thrown to the lion's because they had said, Jesus is Lord. And Caesar said, oh, really? I am Lord. And if you will not confess it, then you will die. So the very real issue confronting the original audience is, is maintaining the lordship and kingship of Jesus really worth it? Is it worth going to the lions affirming Jesus is Lord? Is it worth being lit on fire to say Jesus is Lord? Is it worth it? And so they were questioning. And so Mark wants his audience and he wants you to address the issue, who is Jesus and who is he to you? Because if he's just a good luck talisman or a cosmic therapist affirming his kingship, affirming his lordship, will really be nothing substantial. And when the day of trouble and trial comes, you'll say, self-preservation, baby. Jesus, at the beginning of this book, is revealed to be the Son of God, the Anointed One of the Lord. The Father speaks from heaven we talked last week about what it meant that the heavens were rent and the Spirit descends and anoints Him. He's identified and declared to be the Anointed One, the Messiah. And then He goes into the desert, to the wilderness, and He does battle with spiritual forces, thereby framing the context of the struggle and highlighting our greatest needs. So He's been identified and declared, tested and proven, he is the man. He's the one that God has chosen to be the Savior of the world. 
What does that mean for us? And so, sooner or later then, what each and every one of us must do is address the issue of Jesus and his authority in our lives. Is Jesus an authority figure or is he just that cosmic therapist who wants to tell you how great you are? Is Jesus a person of consequence that what he says he means and when he commands it is to be obeyed? Is Jesus someone who is to be taken seriously and submitted to? And so in this section, we see Jesus presented to us as someone who is quite compelling. Having been affirmed and revealed to be the anointed one, now Mark wants us to see a whole bunch of situations where Jesus was in and how people responded. Because you have to ask yourself, how would I have responded? In light of what these stories tell us about Jesus, what then do we do? So in this passage, we see Jesus being very, very authoritative. His compelling call works in three different areas we see. We see that Jesus calls disciples. Now his compelling call is presented in very dramatic fashion as we will see. As, as such that like, like obedient servants, they come. We see his compelling call in that he casts out the demons without any of the fanfare that characterized exorcisms even to this day. And we see him curing the diseases, showing authority over even the material world. His authority is universal in scope and profoundly personal in nature. We see his authority on display. And the question then is, what do we do with it? Looking at this passage, um, you get a really neat glimpse into Mark's style and how he's woven this narrative together to make a point in that when you consider verse 13, how does verse 13 end? It ends with him out in the wilderness having just been tempted and he's being ministered to by the angels, okay? And then, and then the next verse is verse 14, which says, And when John was arrested, he came into, Jerusalem, or into Galilee proclaiming. So you would think that verse, the way he crafted his narrative, that verse 13 happens and immediately verse 14 happens. But in actuality, there was a significant time gap. There was about a year of time gap. John the Baptist and Jesus, their ministry overlaps for about a year. And in Matthew 4, we learn that when John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus withdrew to the region of Galilee. So if you read John and Luke and stuff, you see that after Jesus was tempted, he had some ministry down in Judea, in Jerusalem. But once John gets arrested, it's, tensions are a little high. It's, a, it's getting a little hot. And so he withdraws up to Galilee to back off. A huge thing of Jesus' ministry was he, he did not want overexposure too fast. Because with all the expectations that people had, he knew that would actually undermine his ability to proclaim the gospel widely. 
So he withdraws, but then he comes forward in verse 14, and we get a summary of his message. He simply says, in three clauses, a one-sentence summary of Jesus' message. The times are fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I love that. Mark was brilliant. He took three independent clauses and weaves them into one sentence, and that serves as a one-sentence summary of the main three points of Jesus' preaching ministry. The times are fulfilled. All the Old Testament stuff, everything, it pointed to me. And so all the future hope and expectation you were looking for in a Messiah, well, it's come to this moment, to this point. Everything in the Old Testament, it's not open-ended anymore. We're coming to the end of that. The kingdom of God is at hand. Wow. The kingdom of God, God's dominion over the world, over the universe, over the lives and hearts of men is near and it's here. It's embodied in the person of Jesus. And as it becomes embodied in his followers, it expands throughout the world. And so eventually, the day comes when we see every knee bowing, every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord. And in that final day, God's kingdom will be universally realized. But the kingdom was dawning in Christ, his person. So those looking for an earthly material kingdom, which was basically defined as independence from Rome, were misguided. But then lastly, the third prong of Jesus' preaching ministry was repent and believe in the gospel. If, you're a, if you've been to many fundamentalist revivals, you know that you know, they love talking about the repentant part and believing. And unfortunately, I think that what's happened many times in, in our own circles is we, I think we've actually sloughed off on the whole repenting part. The two are so in, intrinsically connected. Um, as I'm sitting here looking at this, repent and believe. Okay, so what does it mean to repent? Well, if you've been to Sunday school or... You know that repenting means to turn away from something. It means that we turn away from our sins to something else. It's not simply that I was interested in this and now I'm just turning away and I'm aimlessly. It reflects an intentional act of turning from something to something. And it reflects the giving up, the, the, the actual despising of a former way of living of thinking, of acting. And it's specifically regarding our sins. They were offensive to God. They were condemning to us. And so they are to be turned away from. And instead, we, we embrace something else. Now, do we embrace godly living? Is that what it says? What does it say? We repent and believe the gospel. Now, the fact that repenting, which is a physical act, is juxtaposed or contrasted with believing underscores something that the Reformed and the Puritans spent much effort and energy on. And that is, in every sinful affection and act, there is a measure of disbelief, of unbelief. Which is why successful and true repentance is always tied to embracing by faith 
what God has revealed in His Word. Without belief, there can be no genuine repentance. It's just behavior modification because you perceive some material need or reason to do it. Behind every sinful inclination is disbelief or incorrect belief. Specifically and typically, sin offers you something. Now, it happens in the blink of an eye. And if you're actually going to analyze it, you've got to go into slow motion. You know how they, when a pitcher pitches the fastball and they'll replay it and they'll slow it down so you can see it going really, really. You've got to do that because sin and temptation works very quick. But sin offers you something. It offers you happiness, security, success. You'll be better off if you do this than if you don't. And so... Jesus and the gospel comes along and says that the promises of the king are weightier and more worthy than the promises of sin. Turn away from that. Don't listen to that. Those are wrong beliefs. Believe in the gospel. Affirm those promises and you will live blessedly forevermore. Now, within true belief, the fact that it is juxtaposed with repentance refers that belief is not merely intellectual. There, ha- there is a volitional, real-life component, behavioral component to belief. Truly believing, truly affirming, does in fact result in a changed life. We are called to holiness. Remember the lessons of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We are not saved by works. We are saved for works. Okay? So repent. Turn away from the false beliefs that were informing your sinful actions. Turn towards the truth and embrace the promises of God. So this is the summary of Jesus' message. Now real quick, it says that Jesus preached the gospel. Believe in the gospel. Maybe you've seen on PBS, or maybe you've been to college, and you've heard some professor talk about how the the religion of Jesus is different than the religion of Paul. And that Paul is the one who invented Christianity as you know it. And, And part of the argument they make is that in the Gospels, Jesus says the word, believe the Gospel, but the Gospel's never defined. What is the gospel? You have to go to the epistles and where Paul or or Peter or John spells it out what the gospel message is. And they say, see, they just invented this. Jesus had a different message and these, these, these apostles or the writers of the New Testament just invented the whole, you know, that we're all sinners. And, you know, Jesus' gospel was be a do-gooder and Paul's gospel is, you know, repent of your sins and stuff. That's what they say. But I want to remind you, don't believe things that they tell you because it's bunk. Remember, the original recipients of Matthew, of Mark, of Luke, and of John were churches. Remember that the apostles and their, in this case, disciples, wrote the Gospels to churches. Which means that before these churches received these Gospels, they had been established as churches by the apostles. 
So that meant there had been years of the apostles preaching and teaching. And so, in other words, the people who received these letters knew the gospel. They had had it proclaimed to them by Paul, by Peter, by Matthew, by by all the apostles. They had proclaimed it to them so that when they wrote these gospels to the churches, they were able to use, for lack of a better word, church language, so they, as a shorthand for the overall message. Think of how much longer it would have been had Mark or Matthew or Luke or John spent the time to write out the gospel in here and said they could just use shorthand. He preached the gospel. Because Paul's already explained what the gospel is. We have this thing called the whole Bible, not just one book. So when you wonder, why does Jesus not spell out the gospel? It's because the gospel had already been spelled out to the people in the epistles, in the preaching of the apostles. The churches were established. They knew the gospel. So when they write the gospels as books, they can use the shorthand, Jesus preached the gospel. Okay? Same religion, same faith, just written contextually. So... The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That is the message of Jesus. Now everything that follows serves to illustrate and confirm that point. So, we see in verses 16 through 20 that Jesus' authority and the veracity of his message is confirmed and that he calls some disciples. He calls Two sets of brothers, Simon and Andrew. Simon, as we know, becomes, gets renamed as Peter. And then he calls James and John. And the nature of the call is phenomenal. The closest thing we have in the Bible to it is when Elijah gives the call to Elisha. But even his call is not so boldly stated as does Jesus here. Basically, the nature of the call is remarkable because nowhere in the Bible does someone say, follow me. You would think the proper thing would be to say, I'll come teach you about God. Or, you know, I'll show you, I'll teach you the Torah. Or I'll teach you, instead it's simply follow me. It's very personal. Very audacious. And how do they respond? with scoffs. In that day, teachers didn't go seek followers. You found the wise sage rabbi and you went to him and you requested to be a disciple and then he would test you. They had like entrance exams. And here Jesus comes up to them. Follow me. Wow. Audacious. And how do these people respond? In a culture in which family ties were everything, they're presented as immediately just dropping what they're doing and following. Talk about a compelling personality. What was it that drew them? Was it the winsomeness of his voice? Was it the tone of his voice? Was it his physical presence? Or was it the inward compulsion that comes when a lost sheep hears the voice of its shepherd and it follows? 
Jesus is a compelling person. They gleefully left their nets, their boats, their dad in a boat with hired hands, so they didn't abandon him. And they follow. What kind of authority is that? That they would forsake their livelihoods, forsake their family traditions, and follow him. That's the kind of authority Jesus has. But then second, it says, I will make you fishers of men. You know, many, 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 many wonderful sermons have been preached on this. And I'm not going to repeat them, but to show the authority of Jesus and that he takes an image from the Old Testament. Did you know Jesus was not the first person to talk about fishing for people? At least three times in the Old Testament that analogy is used. But we see Jesus, the lawgiver, taking the old use of that metaphor and turning it on its head. You see, in the Old Testament, being a fisher of men was a much more ominous metaphor. It referred to God catching people to bring them to judgment. But we learn from John 3.18 that the ministry of Jesus was not one of condemnation. He did not come to condemn the world. Why? According to John 3.18, because the world is already condemned. And so he takes that Old Testament metaphor as the lawgiver and he flips it on its head. And so now the metaphor is used for saving people from judgment. So we see the compelling call of Jesus to even turn the metaphors of the Old Testament on their heads. And he tells them, I'm going to teach you how to save people. How to help them escape the judgment. What a wonderful call. What a compelling call. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't just show that he has authority over the, the desires and the will and the inclination of people. He goes into a synagogue. And the synagogue system, as you may recall, was, was started in the era of the Babylonian exile when they didn't have access to the temple. And so they would gather together and to worship. And it was a tradition back in the day that a, that a visiting person could speak. So we actually see Paul taking use of that tradition during his ministry as well. And so Jesus gets to start teaching. And they're amazed. Notice that it doesn't really focus on the content of what he says here. It's just that his teaching amazed them. It was authoritative. And it refers specifically to the teaching noun. In other words, the stuff he was saying was authoritative stuff. And it amazed them because it apparently didn't just jibe with all the traditions of men that they had been hearing through the rabbis. Now, I don't know what Jesus sounded like. The closest I can imagine in my mind's eye is that where the Old Testament prophets would stand and speak authoritatively. And you know how a prophet would always preface his remarks with, Thus saith the Lord. Well, I imagine Jesus spoke like that, except he didn't have to preface. He didn't say, Thus says the Lord. He, he could basically say, Thus says me. And you know he must have said stuff like that because of all the I am statements in John. Think of how audacious it would have sounded to the natural here to have someone stand up, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That sounds pretty audacious, doesn't it? 
And if I did that, you guys would probably run me off. Because those are crazy things for a person to say. But that was Jesus and his authority. So he spoke with authority. And then an amazing thing happens here. Now, it may not amaze many church people, but a guy with a demon shows up at the church service. Now, I'm sure that some in here at one point in your life may have thought that some other folks in your church may have had demons. (laughs) But here it really happened. And it identifies him. And like he does, he tells the demon to be quiet and to leave. Now, a lot of ink has been spilt over why Jesus doesn't want demons professing his name. And in in Mark in particular, if you read any commentaries, you'll hear something called the, the messianic secret. Where Jesus routinely tells people to be quiet. Don't tell. And the Recurring consensus is that Jesus was not just God. Remember, he was the God-man. And as we see even at the end of this chapter, man, once the word gets out about him, I mean, he's just so barraged with, bombarded with people, he, he can't go around anymore. He has to go out into the countryside. So in an era in which the tensions were high, the expectation was high, and there were so many competing expectations He didn't want all the hubbub prematurely because it was actually an impediment to his ministry. But specifically the demons. The king of glory repeatedly and consistently does not want his identity being revealed by the demons. And I think that's appropriate. I mean, he's the all-wise one. But he wants his followers to identify who he is and come to faith in him on the basis of testimony that is reliable. Because demons are not trustworthy. And if a demon says, oh, this is the Son of God, would people really trust it? And are they even worthy to be emissaries? They're the enemies. And so Jesus doesn't want that kind of testimony that would cause people to question, because you can't trust anything a demon says. So he tells them to be quiet. So he casts out the demon. And what's more, he casts it out without fanfare. Pick any one of the myriad exorcism-type movies that are out there. And there's always a spectacle. There's always this ritual. You know, there's always oil and water and candles and chants. And, <clears throat> and it was kind of the same back then. It's kind of the same now, even in, when they try to exorcise a demon. All that hubbub. What does Jesus do? Be quiet. Come out of him. And it goes. Okay? So Jesus shows his compelling authority over even the spirits by casting them out. And so, notice how it says in verse 28, they... Uh, Verse 27, they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Okay, so he preaches, a demon comes, he casts it out. And then their response is to say, amazing, a new teaching with authority. And then he casts out demons. And this shows what the miracles, including the casting out of demons, was intended to do. The miracles were intended to confirm the message. 
And what was the message? Remember back to the beginning. The times are fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That is what Jesus is trying to drive home. But consistently, you see, they, they just want the show. So immediately they leave the synagogue. And by the way, archaeologically, they found the synagogue in Capernaum. And underneath the synagogue in Capernaum that dates from the early 300s, there's the foundation of the synagogue that would have been around in Jesus' day. And almost next door is a house that was converted, or the ruins of a house that had been converted to a church. So they are pretty convinced that archaeologically we know where the synagogue was that Jesus was in, and we know where the house that they were in right here is. So they go next door, it's Peter's mother-in-law's house, and she's sick. Now, of course, it says Peter's mother-in-law. So what does that tell us about Peter? He was married. And we have it confirmed for us in 1 Corinthians 9, 9, 5. But you would not believe the the gymnastics that some groups jump through to try to get around this. Peter was married. Okay? And his mother-in-law is sick. Now, this is the healing that occurs on the Sabbath, but no one knows about it because it's in the quiet of a house. And he simply goes up and he takes her up, he lifts her up, and she's healed. And her healing is so complete that she's able to immediately resume the normal activities that her culture would have told her that she needed to do in that situation, which is serve the guests. She didn't need to take a moment to recover. He didn't just break the fever. She's healed completely. And so she begins serving them. And then it says, it's very careful to note that at nightfall, all the people in the town brought all their sick and possessed. Nightfall. What happened at nightfall? It's the end of the Sabbath. So right here, early in Jesus' ministry, he's not trying to be confrontational with the, with the religious elite yet. Publicly, he is, he's not engaging in conflict. So at nightfall, they bring him all the sick and all the demon-possessed, and he heals many. And then I'm reminded of uh, verse 32 through 34, where they make a distinction between the sick and those who are oppressed by demons. Again, some of you may watch PBS specials. And they treat these people back in the day like they were a bunch of idiots. These people were so backward that they thought anytime someone had a sniffle that it was a demon. And so all these things of demon, these weren't demons, it was just people were sick and they were just too stupid to know how to correctly identify it. That happens. That's said. That's in print. But look here. They bring their sick and they bring their possessed. Does that sound like they didn't know the difference between the two? They were smart. A lot smarter than we give them credit for. Okay? So don't, please do not believe the stuff you hear that says that these people were just, can't be trusted because they were unintelligent or uneducated. No, they could identify and they knew the difference between a fever and a possession, okay? 
And I'm trying to draw out these points so that way you can understand that these details are in here and they add historical veracity, truthfulness. You can trust this. So then he cures the disease a few days later. He encounters a leper. And just an interesting little note that we'll make reference to later on. Leprosy is the one disease that's mentioned in the New Testament that Jesus heals people of, that it never says, he never uses the word heal in regards to it. Never. Search the four Gospels. You are never healed of leprosy. You are cleansed of leprosy. And we'll talk more about that later. But this guy comes, if you want, will, you can clean me. I do will. You're cleansed. And then Jesus tells him to go make an offering according to what Moses prescribes because he did not come to, abol- to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. And of course, he tells the man to be quiet. The man doesn't. He blabs. And Jesus, as a result, has his ministry impeded. It says, direct, there's a direct correlation to this man blabbing. He's so popular, people are hounding him, bombarding him. He can't even preach anymore. But that is specifically why he came, we learn in verse 38. He came to preach. So once again, the miracles are intended to confirm the message. What is the message? The end of the times. The times are fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the message. And all these acts, calling disciples, showing sovereignty over the hearts and minds of people, casting out demons, showing sovereignty and authority over the spirits, curing and cleansing disease, showing that He is authoritative over even the physical realm and the ailments that befall us, are intended to point us back to the message. But repeatedly, even here, the people, yeah, 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 message, message. Heal me. Make me right. And oh, how many people there are, even to this day, who ignore the teaching of Jesus and instead focus on what Jesus can do for them. Oh, if I have Jesus in my life, my family will be happier. Oh, my life will have more meaning. Oh, my relationships will be more sound. Oh, I will feel like I'm a somebody special. Oh, I won't feel guilty anymore. This is what Jesus can do for me. And they never mind the message. Jesus, as God's anointed, has given a message. There is no hope in anyone other than Him. The times are fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That message is one of hope, but it's also one of warning, is it not? Is there not an ominous back ring to that message the kingdom of god is at hand repent and believe in the gospel there is something threatening about the kingdom of god to the unrepentant and in jesus day at first they tried to ignore it they were so distracted by his miracles and eventually when they're confronted by it they seek to destroy it because it's offensive so jesus the one who's been anointed by God, gives this message. The times are fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And his authoritative proof is that he calls people. He casts out demons. 
and He cures and cleanses diseases. What will you do? Are you going to seek Jesus out for what He can do for you and not heed the message? Or will you recognize that all the wondrous things that Jesus does is intended to drive home the validity and the urgency of the message? And oh yeah, people still need to hear. And when you were called to believe, you were called to grow and to serve. While this is not a message about becoming a fisher of men, do not doubt for a moment that it applies to you. The world is condemned. It is under judgment. As John said, the axe is already at the root of the tree. Any moment, judgment can fall. The Son of God has come. He has been crucified. He's been raised. And now human history resides waiting for the second return and the final judgment. The message is still out there. Repent and believe in the gospel. And all these proofs are given that we might believe. Will you? Jesus is someone of consequence. And his proofs verify it. Will you repent and believe the gospel? Let's pray.